So in 2014, Pastor Chris was going away on his one-year sabbatical. That's 2014. And that means he wouldn't be in Singapore for the full year. And because I'm the poorest pastor in Singapore who did not have a car then, Pastor Chris decided to lend me his car for one whole year. And because my driving skills were so bad, and that, you know, when I reverse this car into the church car park, I would usually knock into the metal pillars. And so there was a dent in this car. Can you have a slide? Yeah, that's the dent over there. So I would spend a whole year sending his car for multiple repairs. And I had to pay from my own pocket. I couldn't claim for it. <laughs> and just two months ago, I brought my family swimming on my day off. So we were trying this new pool, and it's a jacuzzi. And so under the afternoon sun, get off the slide, sitting in there, the bubbles were just coming up to the surface. And then my kids really had fun with this jacuzzi. But after enjoying ourselves for a while, I got out of a jacuzzi and to look for the button to turn off the bubbles. And so I took off my goggles and walked around the pool. But that was a great mistake because I was short-sighted. And my glasses, my goggles are powered goggles. And without my glasses, I moved around half blind, and I finally found a button. I was so excited. So in my excitement, I bent down, I pressed the button, and I kicked my toe against a metal deck chair. And at the moment, all I could think of was the pain on my toe. But my family, they were very happy. They were rejoicing with me. They said, yes, you found the button, you found the button. But for me, I was thinking, my toe, my toe. <laughs> and the next day, I saw the doctor, and the toe was swollen red. And there was a dent on my toe. It was like there. Yeah. So it's, it's something like this. It was all red, but it, it was, mine was the middle toe. It was all red. And so there was a dent in the toe, and it was out of shape. And it wasn't a glamorous dent. You know, there was nothing to boast about. There are some dents in our life. There are some dents that we purposely want to make. We are so obsessed about making such dents. That's all we think about from morning to evening. What kind of dance? What do I mean? Okay, the next slide. And it's this. And this is what Steve Jobs said. He said, we are here to put a dent in the universe. Otherwise, why else even be here? He said, we are here to make a dent in the universe. Otherwise, why else be here? And this quote was attributed to Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, the maker of iPhones and iPads. What does he mean exactly by this quote? What it means is this, the people who's working at Apple, if they're asking for a job, they must want to make an impact in the lives of others. They must want to make a difference and lift the mark in the history of humanity, like making a dent in the universe. So they must see their job as a mission. They must die for their jobs. They're Steve Jobs. <laughs> ah, you got it, right? You see, the reason why we find this quote so inspirational, because deep down inside, we are insecure people, because we don't know our real worth. It is because we are afraid that somehow in our lives, that we have no meaning to our lives, that when we are gone, no one will remember us. We are afraid that if we don't make a difference now, if we don't make an impact in this world, then we can't tell other people that we are someone important. We don't deserve their love. We are no longer worthy of the respect 
And that's why we find such quotes very inspirational because we are fundamentally insecure people. So what does this have to do with the Bible passage that we just read? You see, it's taken from the book of John. And by the time the book of John was written, it's probably about 50 years after the death of Jesus and his resurrection. At this time, the church was still very young and they were facing many struggles. First, they were facing persecutions, that means people against the church, the Romans and the Jews. At the same time, there was also a rise of false teaching that was seducing the church people away from them. And that's called Gnosticism. And this was a setting, the persecution and the seduction, that John was writing these words. So you see, Gnosticism is a big term. But what it says is nothing new. It says that Jesus was an ordinary man. And that he was a man just like us, but somehow he became God. And if we somehow could figure out Jesus' secret knowledge, that we too can awaken the spark, the spark within us, the divine spark, and then we can also become like God. With special hard work and achievements, we can make ourselves equal with God. In other words, by now you should recognize the same old lie of the devil in the Garden of Eden. Eat of the fruit of knowledge and you will be like God. And so the fake news of Gnosticism is this. Man becomes God. But the good news of the Bible, my friends, is not man becoming God, but it's God becoming man. You see, the good news of the Bible is not that we become God so that we can make an impact in the world, to make a dent. But the good news is that God loves us so much that while we are making a mess in this world, God became man to take on flesh and so that he can go and represent us on the cross to be punished for our sins on our behalf. So the good news it's not that we have to work hard to win the love of God, but the good news is that God loves us so much that He would die for us. The Steve Jobs of the world want us to die for them, but the Jesus of heaven came to die for us. And after Jesus rose from the dead, He showed His disciple Thomas that He now has dents on His hands because his palm was pierced to the cross for us. And also, he has a dent, he showed his disciple Thomas, by his side, where he was pierced by a Roman soldier. And so it is said, my friends, that 2,000 years later, although we modern-day Christians may understand this good news in our head, in our hearts, when we walk around, we are still afraid we're still afraid that we're not making any impact. We're still afraid that we are not bearing fruit for God. And so somehow He won't love us anymore. And we're so afraid that if we don't make an impact for God in His church or in missions, he will, won't, we will somehow lose His love. And so we think in our minds that grace is only for non-believers to help them to become Christians. Next slide. You see here, the grace is only for the front part, gospel, for pre-conversion. But once we have become Christians, we must work hard for God. 
like some spiritual disciplines to work harder for our holiness or to serve harder in church or to be involved in cross-cultural missions. And then somehow we can continue to have God's love for us, that we deserve His love for us. And so there's no more grace for disciples. Not that we proclaim this, but this is how we live. But see, none of the things that listed down that were to do are wrong. In fact, we should be involved in them. The problem is not what we do, but the problem is how we do them. See, the problem is that when we do them, we do without the grace of God. We think that we must achieve much to make a dent in the universe that God made, and then He will love us again. So in the end, our Christian life is always marked with guilt. So for example, what do I mean by marked with guilt? At a hard day at work, when we have a chance to share the gospel for someone joyfully to a colleague, and there was a positive response, and then we do so well in our workplace, we tick through all our to-do lists, and then we go home, we feel so good about ourselves, we think we have a good day, we think God loves us. But what is a bad day then? A bad day is when we have a lousy day, that all that we plan to do, we couldn't do, that we fail in all the tests, no matter how hard we study, that when we perform badly at work, and then when we try to share the gospel, our friends rejected us. And so we feel lousy by ourselves. We go back. We don't think we deserve God's love anymore. We don't even love ourselves. And so we are vacillating between this good day, bad day syndrome. And so it only reveals that while we may understand in our head that the good news is that God loves us even though we don't deserve that love, in our daily lives, we believe the lie that He loves us only when we perform well somehow in life and in church. So when we lose the gospel in our lives, actually there's no more joy for us. We lose that joy and it's filled with guilt instead. That is the number one sign that we have left the grace of God. But nothing is further from the truth. See, what we just read from John 15, this is what Jesus says. Next slide. So Jesus explained that he is the true vine, the green portion of the vine, and that we are the branches of this vine, the red portion. And God the Father, he is the gardener. And he's the gardener who's looking for a harvest of fruits. And the branches that bear no fruit, and the red branches that have no fruit, he will cut and throw them into the fire to be burnt. And so it said in verse 6, and those branches that bear fruit, he will prune them. He will remove the parts that are dead or the parts that are useless so they will bear more fruit. And if we read these words without grace in our heart, what will happen? How will we interpret them? We will think that God is like our scary and harsh boss. We will think that God is like the judge of Master Chef. Right? When you appear before him, we are always trembling with fear. And that those who are useless, God will fire, right? And those who are useful, He'll squeeze them harder so that they'll bear more fruit. That's how we interpret subtly in the mind because of our own fears. But nothing is further from the truth. Look carefully at the text. See, firstly, the analogy of the vine and the branches is that the main actor, the one who is active, is the gardener, God the Father. Can I have a picture? And so this is my kids taking care of the plants along our HDB cor common corridor. 
unfortunately, we didn't appear in the papers yesterday. <laughs> but anyway, so but it's interesting that the plants here are not active. The only ones who are active are my kids. They will be watering them according to a schedule. You know, they take turns. They plant their own. They put their own schedule. And then when they notice the plant's not doing well, they report the soil. They do it by themselves. And then they'll change it, add fertilizers, put perlite, separate the soil. And when the plant dies, the one who cares for the plant will feel sad and cry. But the plant does nothing. Right? And so what is Jesus saying here? He's saying that the vine is planted by Jesus, by God himself, taken care by God himself. The branches are being pruned by God himself. The whole initiative to plant, to care for the vine is from God. He took the first step, not us. And so seriously, we have to get that in our minds. And so when Jesus says, secondly, he says that when he has come to replace the old vine, the old vine, he's the new vine now, He's saying one thing. He's saying that he's the new Israel. He's replacing the old Israel. What is the old Israel? Those who rely on a whole human strength, who refuse to trust in God, who are unable to obey God. And we see in John 3.16, the very famous verse, and that's the context. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So John 3.16 will affect the way we interpret John 15. What he's saying here is that those who refuse to believe in Jesus, the new vine, the true vine of God, they are like branches that bear no fruit of belief. They will be thrown away, just as like the Pharisees rejected Christ. But for those who believe by grace, they belong now to the new vine. And that those who believe God will prune them so they will bear more fruit. Pruning means to cut away the parts that are no longer useful or dead parts so that they won't draw nutrients for no reason to encourage the good branches to grow even more. And these branches, the passive branches so-called, John wants to show us that it is God who initiates our faith, who cares for us and who help us to remain in Him. All we need to do is to remain in the vine. So this is a command. This is not a suggestion. See, the context here is that under the threat of persecution, right, from the Roman authorities and from the Jewish authorities, and under the seduction of false teaching, the Christians may be tempted to leave the faith. Jesus says, stay, don't move, because if you no longer believe, if you move away, if you do not remain in me, you will bear no fruit. And so, friends, this is not a passage about God pressurizing his church to bear fruit for him, but it's a command for us to remain in that grace. And when we remain, we will bear fruit. It's a guarantee because the branches draw their life directly from the vine himself and provided we remain in the vine. But apart from him, we can do nothing. Which is why we read in verse 5 and 6, it says this. Can you read for me? One, two, three. I 
Thank you so much. So what does it mean we ask ourselves to remain in Jesus, to abide in Him? So one day I was on my way to a vaccination centre, and guess what I saw? From afar, I saw a very big and fruitful plant. <laughs> you look carefully, closer inspection is all fake. It's actually a very, very large cactus, right? And they hung plastic pineapples on it for Chinese New Year. And so this reminded me of what Paul David Tripp said. He said once he said that there was this tree in his garden, and that if he were impatient that his tree was not bearing fruit, what would he do? He'll go to the supermarket, buy all the ripe fruits, come home and staple all the fruits on the tree, right? And so this may sound ridiculous, but sometimes this is precisely what we do. We are so impatient with ourselves that we become insecure, that we have nothing to show for, no fruit. So we try all sorts of methods in hope that we can be fruitful. And so during the pandemic, for those who with us the last few years, you know the Lord has opened doors for us, for our church to be involved in serving the migrant workers. And so praise God that many churches in Singapore were able to be roped in because of the intention given. And so there was a WhatsApp chat group for us to share the tips and the updates of how to reach out to migrant workers. And then at one point, some churches begin to update the chat group that many workers were touched by the love shown that they came to Christ and it pictures them praying and becoming Christians. And at that point, each message coming into my phone, I became more and more insecure because I had nothing to show for. So what did I do? I do what Singaporeans do best. No? I'll give my best and more, right? I will achieve what I work harder because count on me in Singapore. <laughs> so I work harder, I strategize harder, more Zoom meetings, and the bear fruit. So then one book I bought on Amazon, I was reading is this guy called Kosuke Koyama, he's a Japanese missionary, and he served in Thailand. And his book is called Water Buffalo Theology. And this is what he wrote about Singapore. He describes Singapore as efficient because we turn around a small town to a world-class city in a short span of 50 to 60 years. And I believe that as Singaporeans, being efficient is our national pride and our identity. And I strongly believe that being Singaporean Christians, our favourite book of Bible is the book of Ephesians. So, Koyoma, this missionary, he wondered, he wrote, if God is really efficient like a Singaporean government, because it may seem that God took his own sweet time. He wrote another book about three miles an hour. God who takes three miles an hour. Because from Adam to Noah to Abraham to David and finally to Jesus, he took his sweet time. Just to give us a sense of a timeline, from the time God promised Abraham all the way to Jesus, guess how many years in between? You click on it, 2,000 years. 2,000 years to fulfill the promise to Abraham that he will become a father of many nations. But yet, God is very, very fruitful. It's only we Singaporeans are always in a rush 
which is why I told people before that I married a Russian. <laughs> we are always in a hurry to be productive. Just because we are busy doesn't mean that we are fruitful. Just because we check so many things off our to-do list doesn't mean we are bearing fruit that lasts. So has this culture of efficiency crept into our churches, I ask? It has definitely crept into my heart because I had nothing to show for in all this migrant work. So I became less and less patient with myself as well as my co-workers. And then my wife detected the change in my attitude wherever the message came in. Ding, 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 they kept jumping like Mario. I was so jumpy when the messages arrived. There was all these last-minute changes and reports and all. So in such a situation, what does it mean, I ask, to remain in Christ? Verse 5 is helpful. He says that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. You see, I have to tell myself that if the other churches are bearing fruit of, and they are harvesting, it's not simply because of their strengths, but because God has appointed them to bear fruit. Because apart from Christ, they could do nothing. And if it's God who appointed them to bear fruit, I should rejoice with them instead of feeling insecure. And then verse 7 to 13, he continues to explain what it means to remain in Jesus. And it's like a bit small here. He says, if you remain, verse 7, his words remain in us. Jesus' words will shape our thoughts and prayers. And then verse 9, to remain in Jesus, it means to remain in his love. And this is the love, amazingly, that shared, verse 9, between the Father and the Son, the love that's in heaven, is now on earth. And at verse 10, to remain in His love, we are to keep His commands. Obeying God is the fruit of knowing that love. It's not the means to win the love. Verse 11, and when we do so, Jesus' joy is in us. And then our joy is complete if we obey His commands. And what is His commands? Verse 12, His commands is this, love each other as I have loved you. The way He laid down His life for us. So to climb myself out of the pits of insecurity, I had to meditate on God's love for myself again and again. By grace, I begin to bask myself in God's divine love between the Father and the Son. And only then I can begin to become a true blessing to others. And only then can I love the way He loves me. And that means to serve each other without asking for anything in return. You see, my friends, while God wants us to bring good news to others, to bear fruit of evangelism and missions for His glory, Ultimately, the fruit he's looking for, the fruit he picks up and he examines, are people who resemble his son, Jesus Christ. In other words, what he wants most are that we become more and more like Jesus. And those we evangelize are growing more and more like Jesus, especially in the way we love each other. Because Jesus is the first, first fruit from among the dead. God doesn't want plastic pineapples hanging on cactus trees. He wants real fruit. We cannot cheat God to make big plans for His glory without becoming more like Jesus. 
We cannot cheat God by working harder and harder for our godliness without remaining in His grace. We need to remember that bearing fruit does not make us worthy of His love, but bearing fruit is the result of remaining in His love. So many months later, we found that from one of the migrant workers we befriended, they told us that before the pandemic, there was really an Indian church in Singapore reaching out to them. And this church, so we contacted this church via Zoom and found out who they were. And what did we find out? We found out this church was started by the wife of another migrant worker. She came to Singapore in an HDB flat and she saw many depressed neighbours and she started to reach out to them and then she reached out to other migrant workers. A small house church that was not registered with the authorities. And so when the pandemic came, they were so worried for the workers at the dorm because they were not approved or known to the authorities. They could not go into the dorms. It was illegal to do so during the pandemic. They could only pray and pray. Whereas for us, God led us to the authorities at MOM, Ministry of Manpower. And we were given the permission to bring to the workers anything like food, masks, biryani, care packages, fruit. But without us knowing, as we were struggling about our fruitlessness, we were the answer to the prayer of this small Indian church. And then, we who can't speak the language, we were praying for those who can speak the language to the workers, and they were the answers to our prayers. So we came away from the Zoom feeling so encouraged to know that ultimately, God has the master plan, not us. God is the one who is the gardener of the vine. We are just the branches. We only need to play our small parts and all will come together in His grand plan. The question is, are we humble enough to play that small part? Verse 15, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I've learned from my father, I have made known to you. So what this verse is saying is mind-blowing. It's because of God's love for us, there's a change in our status. We're no longer servants, but we are friends. So just a few weeks ago, I was ministering in a, old, a church with uh, one of the oldest Teochew churches in Singapore. So I got a lunch with the, one of the oldest Teochew old ladies in Singapore. <laughs> she was 86, a Christian. And she told, we well, were just talking about how, you know, before we came to Christ, when we go to the temple, when we pray in Teochew, we have to tell the gods our name, surname, which child, where we belong, and my road name, the street name, my flat, the apartment block number, the unit number, and I'm the which child, so that the whatever blessings I get won't go to my neighbor. <laughs> Correct. And then I leave not knowing what the God wants. I only know what I want. But when you pray to the true and living God, Jesus, you don't have to tell him your name. He knows you. He knows you before you were even born. All you need to do is come humbly before you and he will tell you what he wants. He wants us to bear fruit, to become like his son, Jesus, and to be part of his glory, his business, to reach out to others. Now that we know what God wants, we never have to second-guess what He wants. So this is not a call 
for passive Christianity, but a call to remain rooted in the grace as we join in God's business. And this mission that we can participate in is therefore given to us by grace. Verse 16, it says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. See, the gospel is that we did not choose Jesus, but Jesus chose us. The gospel is that we did not find Jesus, but Jesus found us. And he chose us to go and appoint us to bear fruit for him. Fruit that will truly last. In other words, we are saved by grace and we shall be fruitful by grace. There's nothing to boast about our salvation and there's nothing to boast about our accomplishment for God. They are both given to us by grace. So often we have heard stories of migrant workers being ushered into churches only to be pressurized to give their lives to Jesus. And how often we heard stories of international students who are curious about Christianity when they're overseas. But when they reach there, they are pressured or often traumatized by over-enthusiastic Christians, trying to make them believe in Jesus and making them say the sinner's prayer two, three times. And the reason they are pressured to believe may be because we Christians are so anxious, so anxious to bear fruit for God, that we no longer see these people as people to be loved. Instead, we see them as customers. We see them as our indicators of our success, our KPIs. And then when we try so hard and they don't believe in what we share, we think, ayah, they have lost the plot of life. But in reality, when we are impatient, we have lost the plot ourselves. Dallas Willard once said this. He says, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. This is one of those verses that you put on the slide and people fall asleep. But let me expound carefully. <laughs> he says here, Grace doesn't mean you are passive. You make an effort, but you don't do so to earn, to merit, to win favour from God. You are coming from a point of security. And so you, as a result of being loved, you make the effort. It's, a, it's an action as a result of knowing the love of God. And so, in other words, whenever we are insecure, Whenever we want to quarrel with someone, it's because we think that person is blocking us, blocking us from earning that worth for ourselves. Because when we are truly secure in God's love, then there's no need for us to earn His love. And even if people are blocking us, it's okay. We have nothing to lose. We don't have to fight. We only have to pray. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you may go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you pray, whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. If what we plan and what we truly want is from God and what God wants for us, the fruit that he wants us to bear, when we pray as such, we will surely bear that fruit. You don't have to worry. But when we think that this fruit we want to bear will win us love and worth, then 
we don't pray and the other person who says no to us now appears to be an obstacle to my achievements, to my happiness and to my fulfilment. So what did my migrant worker team, one of them, give me, a team member? She bought me this. Mai Kan Chong. Pastor Luck, thank you for serving together. This is for you. <laughs> I think the hint cannot be any clearer. <laughs> be anxious for nothing. Mai Kan Chong. Trust God. Kan Chong is a Cantonese word for don't be anxious. So my friends, if you ever see me believing in the, or behaving in an impatient way or being Kam Chong, I give you every permission, I'm serious, to take the Bible and hit me on my head and say, remain in Him, remain in His love. Save my soul. <laughs> so how do we know we are remaining in Jesus? How do we know? What is the key performance indicator that Jesus gave us as Christians to check our hearts that whether we are truly remaining in His love? Verse 17, this is my command, love each other. Do not underestimate the command of loving one another. It is, in fact, one of the hardest things to do. At times, loving fellow Christians is hard. At times, in fact, it's impossible, especially when we are hurt or when they're angry against us or when they perceive that we're the obstacles to the happiness. In fact, anything that the Lord Jesus commands us in the Bible it should be impossible for us to do. Let me say that again. Anything that Jesus commands us in the Bible is for us to do. It's impossible. Because then we are forced to pray. And when we pray and we bear fruit, we cannot boast. All glory will go to Him. And love over here is not about blindly giving other people what they want. Any parent with young children will know if we keep giving them what they want, we are only becoming people pleasers. But we help each other to learn how to love, learn how to love the way God loves, then we are God pleaser. So because in the entire Bible, there's only one way to bear fruit for God. Jesus came to show us that way. John chapter 12, verse 24 says, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. This is the way that Jesus came to show us that how we can bear fruit to die to ourselves. A lot of times, we want to bear fruit without the dying portion. To be honest, right? It's so painful. And because it's the same way for Jesus, it's the same way for us. And so if you're serious about bearing real fruit, not fruit that to pretend that we want to bear, then we better learn to love like Him. This is how our Master bore fruit, and that is how we, as His friends and servants, shall do the same. There are no shortcuts, no silver bullets, no cheat codes, no other way. And so if you're truly honest with yourselves, with myself, we cannot love one another. Which is why, in order for us to bear fruit and obey the command of love, God has to prune us. He looks at our lives. He looks for the dead parts and the sinful parts, and He will prune us. He will prune it away. Then we can bear more fruit for Him. 
And because we are chosen to bear fruit, we are chosen to be pruned. There's no running away. In other words, God doesn't need us to make a dent in the universe. He's more interested in making a dent in our ego. He's more interested to make a dent in our pride and our selfishness. Only then can we learn to love and only then can we bear fruit, fruit that will last. So the main question left for us today is this. Do we truly walk in the good news of God's grace? Are we secure in His grace and love? Do we really want to bear fruit for Him? Fruit that will last? And if we do, will we let Him prune us? Let us go to God in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your word of grace from John 15, that we do not have to do anything to win your love. Help us to know your love, the love that you share with your Father, the glorious love that we cannot even imagine. And so help us to remain in that love and to remain in you as your words remain in us. And help us to learn to love one another the way you love us, to surrender to you as you prune us so that we can bear fruit for you. For your glory, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.